Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. As the host of the Classic FM Concert with John Sushit for 12 years, John Sushit is a household voice in classical music and broadcasting. Before his career at Classic FM, John was celebrated as one of the nation's foremost reporters and newscasters. At ITN, he covered pivotal global events such as the Iranian Revolution, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, and the Philippines Revolution. He has earned accolades including Television Reporter of the Year and Television Newscaster of the Year. In 2008, he received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Royal Television Society, marking his remarkable career. Career spanning nearly four decades in television news. John's lifelong passion for classical music, particularly the works of Beethoven, has been a driving force in his life. He authored seven books focusing on the legendary composer, with his latest publication, a special 250th anniversary edition of Beethoven, The Man Revealed, released in 2020. His dedication to promoting classical music earned him prestigious honors, such as an honorary doctorate from the University of Dundee and an honorary fellowship from the Royal Academy of Music. He's also authored books on Verdi, the Strausses, Mozart, and Tchaikovsky, The Man Revealed, which is the subject of today's discussion. John, I'm so excited to have you on One Symphony today. You were a journalist for your career at ITN, covering major events, including the Iranian Revolution, interviewing the likes of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. But you were always a closeted classical music lover. Can you talk about your transition into classical music as a profession and your connection with Tchaikovsky and how that leads into that? Yes, I certainly can, Devin. And may I say, a pleasure to talk to you all over there, thousands of miles away in the States. But to answer your question back to front, I'll take the Tchaikovsky part first. When I was a schoolboy in secondary education, around about the age of 14 or 15, I just discovered classical music. I was learning the violin, I was learning the piano, and I was pretty poor at both. But I heard Tchaikovsky melodies and I could whistle them, I could hum them. They just stayed in my mind. And I really got into Tchaikovsky's music. And when I was about 17 or so, in a school holiday, I got a job serving behind the counter in HMV Records store in Oxford Street in the centre of London. And I remember the manageress said to me, what department would you like to work in? I said, oh, classical music, please, classical music. And she put me in rock and pop. I had a few difficult weeks there. But I did go up into the classical music department and I bought an LP, 12-inch LP, of Tchaikovsky's Symphony Number no. 4. I put it onto my old box gramophone and it just blew me away. That opening on horns and oboes, bum, 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 bum. And I was hooked from that moment on.
I then got the Romeo and Juliet Fantasy Overture. I then got the Fifth Symphony. I just got really seriously into his music. To move the story forward, when I left school, I went to university and my ambition actually was to become a professional musician because I had taught myself the trombone and believe it or not, became quite a good trad jazz trombonist. My hero was Kid Ori, the great tailgate trombonist from New Orleans. Loved his stuff. And over here we had Chris Barber. We had the Dutch Swing College Band. And I got into that in a big way. My ambition was to go to the Royal Academy of Music in London and study the trombone. Fortunately for the world of music, I changed my mind. At university, I realized I wasn't good enough a musician to become a professional. But I was absolutely fascinated by the news. I kept listening to the radio news, watching television news, reading newspapers, when I should have been doing philosophy, which I was studying and trying to decide if you leave a room, does the table in it cease to exist? That was enough for me. I'd had enough of that nonsense. I decided to become a journalist and I joined Reuters News Agency. From there, I went to the BBC and from BBC to ITN. But long-winded answer to your question, classical music was always the background to my life. I became a reporter, a correspondent at ITN in 1976, which was roughly the time that the first Walkmans came out. Suddenly, you could carry your music in your pocket. And I immediately bought Tchaikovsky's Fourth. I bought lots of Beethoven because Beethoven is really my musical god. I'm writing my eighth book on him at the moment. But Tchaikovsky has always been there. I was an ITN reporter. Then I became an ITN anchorman. For the first time, that gave me a steady life. As opposed to being a reporter where you go into work with your passport and you don't know where you're going to be that night. When I was anchoring, I knew exactly where I would be at exactly what time to go on air precisely the right time. And that at last gave me the opportunity to start writing about classical music composers, which I'd always wanted to do, in particular Beethoven. In the late 90s, I wrote a fictional trilogy on the life of Beethoven, which, to be honest with you, I'm a little bit ashamed of now looking back on it, but it was 30 years ago and I was very keen and what have you. And I've since done many more books on him. But I also wrote about other composers whom I love, namely Mozart, obviously. You have to do Mozart. Everyone loves Mozart. Johann Strauss the Younger, the Strauss dynasty, which I, I absolutely adore Viennese waltzes. People dismiss them as trivial. They're not. They're absolutely wonderful. So I did a book on the Strauss dynasty. That's my favorite Strauss book. It brings it together. And I love how you emphasize there's so much substance in that music. Yes. And in fact, his biggest fan was Wagner. Slight contrast there. And Brahms too. Didn't Brahms want to be the composer of the Blue Danube? That's right. It was actually Strauss's wife who went up to him in a restaurant, asked him to sign a napkin. And he wrote the opening melody of the Blue Danube. And then underneath in German, sadly not by Johannes Brahms. They were absolutely great friends, but also Tchaikovsky. And at last, I turned my attention to the first classical music composer who, as it were, won my love. 
He's always been there in the background of my life. I think he is the most naturally gifted melodist of them all, even Mozart. He is, if you like, Russia's waltz king. Anyone can hum a tune by Tchaikovsky, whether it's the 1812 Overture or the Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy. He could do it all. Interestingly, as you will know, Devon, he really doubted himself. He just did not rate what he wrote, which is so sad to hear when he's turning out these absolutely immortal melodies. I wanted to ask you about self-doubt because you show in the book, it's so clear his brother's recollections of him as a yeah. composer who's constantly saying he's tapped out. He doesn't have any music left. Any piece, even if it's going well, he's doubting himself. Can you talk about self-doubt relative yeah. to Tchaikovsky with maybe other great composers? Also, maybe how it serves all of us creating art or just in our daily lives. So many great composers were filled with self-doubt. The one true exception, it's my musical hero, Beethoven. He never doubted himself for a single moment. I am a genius and you better get used to it. In fact, when his music was rejected, he would say, this isn't for you, this is for future generations. What do you know? But he is, if you like, the exception that proves the rule. Mozart didn't have so much self-doubt as he didn't really understand his own genius. He used to say, I don't know how I'm able to do this, but I just am. So he wasn't so much self-doubt, but I'll tell you one interesting composer riddled with self-doubt is a composer I'm reading up on at the moment whose 200th anniversary is this September, and that's Anton Bruckner, the great symphonist, and up in the northeast of England in Gateshead, the wonderful Royal Northern Symphonia are putting on a big Bruckner weekend, which I'm presenting, and I've always loved his monumental symphonies. To compare Bruckner and Mahler, somebody once said, Mahler's music is full of doubt, self-doubt, question marks. Bruckner's music is full of affirmation. I believe this is for my God Almighty that I believe in, deeply religious man, a devout Catholic, and his music is monumentally positive and self-enhancing. But he doubted his talent and he allowed others to persuade him to rewrite again and again so that the great symphonies, nine in all, we have several versions of almost all of them because he kept going back and saying, yes, I'm sure you're right, I'll redo that. But scholars are now going back to the original and discovering just how good he was. With regard to Tchaikovsky, I think it's part of his character. Of all the great composers, he's probably the nicest individual. No one ever had a bad word to say about Tchaikovsky. He was great company. He loved to drink after a concert, but he was, as you know, homosexual. He was gay and he was absolutely tortured by this. There was a strong gay scene in Russia at the time and he had a lot of gay friends and they used to say to him, why are you so tortured by it? For goodness sake, just enjoy it. It's what you are. But it was no good. He was tortured. He always regarded himself as the outsider, trying to be accepted by everyone. And I think to an extent that spilled over into his music because 
When he was at the St. Petersburg Conservatory, he was tormented by the head of that conservatory who said to him, you're useless. This overture you've written is rubbish. What on earth are you thinking of? So from the earliest days, his music was heavily criticized and he fully expected it to be when he started turning out what we now know as masterpieces. And it led to this sort of modesty that he had, which made him enormously endearing. But you do want to say to him, for goodness sake, Piotr, stop worrying about it. Just keep composing the way you are. He said at the end of his life, my whole life has been a chain of misfortunes because of my sexuality. I'm curious about, you briefly touched on it, reconciling his homosexuality and that acceptance, as you said, in Russian society was a very common thing. But at the same time, he was incredibly distraught over the fact that to him it was a disease and there was discrimination yes. about it and it arguably led to his death years yes. later. Can you talk about what it was like in Russian society and why Tchaikovsky had the kind of reactions that we read about? As I said earlier, there was a thriving gay scene there that he was very much part of, but he was always tortured by it. And he was tortured by it to such an extent that he decided he was always trying to find a cure for it because he felt it was just wrong, but he couldn't help himself as opposed to his friends who didn't see it as being wrong at all. That just as today now, it's fully accepted, but he simply could not accept it. And so he decided to get married. He said, that'll cure it. That'll put it straight. And of course, it was an absolute disaster from literally day one when he was in the Russian Orthodox Church with his bride and the priest at the end said, you may now kiss the bride. He said, what, have I got to do that? So right from the very beginning, he knew he'd made the mistake of his life and it was to haunt him for the rest of his life because he walked away from her as soon as he possibly could. But she kept coming back. She kept coming back. She kept her surname, Tchaikovskaya, until the day she died. She ended up, in fact, in a mental home. She ended up taking a lover and having illegitimate children, but she never forgot him. She certainly pursued him to marry him. She was, if you like, an infatuated student at the conservatory, but he was a willing victim, if you like. And in fact, I rather blame him to the extent that he should have known better than to marry her. Yeah. Everyone makes mistakes, but that was a pretty big one. And it sounds like we know Beethoven wanted the opposite, right? He wanted to be in a relationship. He wanted to get married. And then he decided that his talents were better served to all of humanity instead of just one family. In the case of Tchaikovsky, as a very young person, and you talk about this, he was beautiful, just aesthetically pleasing. All the ladies were attracted to him, his charisma and everything. Can you talk about that and how it's Antonina Milyukova who ended up marrying him? It goes way back. She knew him before he even knew who she was. Can you talk about that decision and some of the more further reaching implications it might have on his mental health and some of his depression and his public face to society? To talk about the music first, in, in some senses, it worked to our advantage, if not to his, because the piece he was working on when he actually got married and completed in the months following the disastrous marriage was the symphony number no. four, the one which very first got me into Tchaikovsky's music. It is that wonderful fate motif at the beginning. Then, interestingly, the next symphony, which didn't come for another 10 years, he says, I am still struggling with fate. It's quite possible that had he not been going through the trauma 
of his marriage, he might not have written the way he did. In fact, he did have one female relationship, which is unique in the history of music. This great patroness, Nadezhda von Meck, she absolutely worshipped his music. And she contacted him out of the blue at roughly the same time that Antonina Milyukova did. But she was not only offering him a lot of money to allow him to compose, she was saying there is a strict condition. We must never meet. Now, little did she know, but that was playing right into his hands. There would be no complications there if they weren't ever to meet. That relationship lasted, I think, for about 13 years. She pushed a lot of money his way. He dedicated the Fourth Symphony to her in gratitude for being his patron. And he dedicated it to her and he said, I'm dedicating my fate symphony to you. And he told her about his disastrous marriage. Who knows whether the fourth would have been the way he wrote it had he not got married. So his relationship with women was extremely strange. First of all, the failed marriage. And then this relationship with Nadezhda von Meck, they actually never met apart from just once when he went to stay at a country estate in Ukraine, he was in a cottage on the grounds and she told him the time of her afternoon walk so that he could avoid walking at the same time. But once she left a little bit early, he left a little bit late and buff, they came up against each other on a path in the woods or something. Utter horror ensued and they greeted each other politely and went in their separate ways. And he sent her a note that evening saying, will you ever forgive me? for my blunder, blah, blah, blah. So very strange relationship. We owe her a lot artistically. I also think of Jeanette Thurber bringing Dvorak to New York and making all that American music possible yeah. that we hear about in the case of Nadezhda von Meck. When you think about it, for any artist, that somebody can come out of the blue and say, I'm going to give you enough money to live off of, to leave a Moscow conservatory or wherever you are, and you never have to meet me. Obviously, that broke off towards the end of her life when it turned out that she didn't have as much money as was thought and her kids got wind of it and possibly even made some threats. Her and Antonina's connection to that music that you started with, the Fourth Symphony, the Fifth Symphony, the Sixth Symphony, if you can give me your opinion about that motive that you talk about, dun, 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 dun. and it comes from Beethoven. And you also talked about at the beginning of the interview how Tchaikovsky has these melodies that you can sing and you can hum. And Beethoven is almost the complete opposite. He has motives that he creates something out of, but nothing is melodic, really. Tchaikovsky created the fourth, fifth, and sixth symphony. They're very much tied together in this idea of fate, which also comes earlier because you talk about his early Fatum piece that is basically fate as well. Can you talk about the meaning of some of these melodies and these motives and these dramas behind, particularly the fourth and the fifth symphony? I think the sixth symphony is a little separated from those two because it's really right at the end of his life. How much does that correlate to his life or is it just pure music? It does correlate to his life because we know from his letters, particularly to Nadezhda von Meck, that he is saying, I'm struggling with this, I'm struggling with that, and I'm composing this new symphony which will reflect my struggle with fate. And we can assume, particularly with the fourth and the fifth, that they did reflect that. In fact, his single most popular piece of music that he ever composed, apparently, is the 1812 Overture. He was commissioned to write that. He didn't want to write it. It was to celebrate the opening of a new church. He wrote to Nadezhda saying, I've written what we would call today a cod piece. 
a piece of nonsense. He said it has no artistic merit whatsoever. Turns out that it's what his most popular piece, and it's full of Russian folk melodies, and it ends with this glorious hymn to the Tsar. So some of his music was programmatic, not inspired by his life because he didn't want to write the 1812. But we have to remember that away from the symphonies, he's writing some of the best loved ballets ever written. There's nothing tortured about Swan Lake or the Nutcrackers or Sleeping Beauty. And the melodies just pour from him. And he's one of the greatest composers of ballet in the history of music. And yet, really, there were only those three. Whereas he wanted to write serious opera. He wrote somewhere around a dozen operas in all, of which only Yevgeny Onyegin is in the repertoire, although not that much, and the Queen of Spades even less. I challenge anyone who's not a professional like you to name any of the others at all. He just never really established himself as a composer of opera, with the exception of Yevgeny Onyegin. But ballet, with all those melodies, oh, yes, absolutely wonderful. Who doesn't know the Sugar Plum Fairy or the Nutcracker Suite, which is performed in the concert hall by an orchestra, five or six little pieces from the middle section of the ballet. He pulled it out and published it himself as a separate suite. And it is just absolute staple of the concert hall rather than the ballet stage. His life is not in those, in the sense that Verdi's life is not in his operas. The operas have plots that are preordained. The ballet has plots that are preordained. So if we want music that reflects Tchaikovsky's inner struggle, his turmoil, we must go to the symphonies and the chamber music. The string quartet with that famous second movement, which is so utterly beautiful. There's a wonderful anecdote that he was in the room of a daily home somewhere in Russia, and it was being performed by a string quartet. He happened to be sitting next to Tolstoy. And he said, it was quite extraordinary. In that second movement with that theme, Tolstoy started crying. And Tchaikovsky said, I was so embarrassed. You'd expect him to say, isn't that wonderful? The great writers impressed by my music, but it embarrassed him. Saint-Saëns is not normally known about him, but I found out when I was researching him, he was a cross-dresser. He loved nothing more than to dress in women's clothing. And he was homosexual, obviously, and he came to Moscow and he met Tchaikovsky. They went into the Moscow Conservatory after it was closed for the day, or it might have been in, in holiday time, I can't remember which. And with them was the head of the Moscow Conservatory who was the brother of the head of the St. Petersburg Conservatory. They were brothers. Uh, it was Nikolai in Moscow and Anton in St. Petersburg. And Nikolai sat at the piano and played some ballet music. And the two of them danced in ballet together. We're not told who took the female part, who took the male part, but it must have been an extraordinary scene. 
Everything was closed and shuttered, obviously, but absolutely wonderful. But as you say, he promised to take Tchaikovsky to Paris, but never did. They did meet again. They hadn't seen each other for about 20 years since that ballet encounter and found themselves sitting next to each other at the awarding of a doctorate to each of them at Cambridge University. I just imagine knowing looks between them. <laughs> just getting back to opera a little bit, you talk about in the book how it really is the pinnacle of achievement. Can you maybe talk about the hallmark of what makes an opera and maybe how Tchaikovsky was viewing what a successful opera could be? Opera involves everything, absolutely everything, even down to costumes and stage design. It's interesting to look at different composers' approach to opera. Beethoven, for instance, Mozart, obviously, Mozart wrote operas. He wrote music the way you and I write emails. It just came very easily to him. Beethoven, as we know, struggled and he finally got Fide, he got what he wanted eight years between the first attempt and the uh, final attempt. And my theory on that is he struggled so hard because it, opera involves so many other things. He would have to deal with not just musicians, but singers as well, stage directors, scenery, and his deafness was worsening. He just thought, I've had enough of this. One was enough. He had several other attempts to get an opera off the ground. In fact, at one stage in his life, he was composer in residence at the little Theater and der Wien outside the city wall of Vienna. He was given a grace and favor apartment, but he was contracted to produce an opera. He had several attempts at it, but never produced one. So in the end, they kicked him out. Interestingly, Johann Strauss, the waltz king, had this urge to write an opera. He was the waltz king, and then the impresarios, with the support of his wife, said to him, you've got to write an operetta, because operettas were the thing that time. You had Offenbach in Paris. You had Gilbert and Sullivan soon to start up in London, and operettas bring the audience in because they're pure entertainment. They make them laugh bit like films would today. So they're not heavy brow serious opera. There was money to be made through operetta. And Strauss was very reluctant to do that. Finally, he had a go and his first attempt failed. His second attempt failed. I think even his third failed. And then he produced Die Fledermaus, which is the greatest operetta of all time. But interestingly, he never repeated that success. Try as he might, Finally, he said, what I've always wanted to do is to write serious opera. Because remember, Wagner was bestriding Europe in the whole, really, of the 19th century. And Verdi was doing similarly in Italy. And they were great competitors. And Verdi, whose operas were more popular than Wagner and remain so to this day, was aware that what Wagner was doing was completely unlike anyone had ever done before, including him. Wagner had this word, Gesamtkunstwerk, total work of art, and through composed, attaching themes to characters, but the music never stops. So they were not popular with the singers themselves because there was no great aria at the end of which the tenor or the soprano will take a huge amount of applause, as in a Verdi opera, the music didn't stop. So there wasn't the applause until the very end. But opera was so popular in Europe and Verdi was churning out brilliant operas that people were flocking to. Wagner was having more trouble, but those who knew were aware this was something entirely new. And so people like Johann Strauss 
wanted to emulate that as well, because it was almost as if to write an opera was proof that you really could write good classical music. Tchaikovsky, as I say, he was pulled the failure one after the other, the failures of his operas. He tried 12 or it may have been 13, and they just flopped one after the other. And he struggled with this. He really did. We know that Tchaikovsky met Brahms and had some strong feelings about his music. Did Tchaikovsky have some associations with Wagner? I don't think they ever met, but I know he saw some Wagner, right? That's right. He was actually at the first performance of the complete ring cycle in Bayreuth, and all four were performed in the course of a week. He was there, and he said afterwards, they're too long. That's too long. You can't expect an audience's attention for that long, but I confess the music is very fine, something like that, and that's being said to this day. I always think about performances of those early music. With Beethoven, the music was virtually impossible in many places because Beethoven wasn't really writing in the orchestral idiom of the time. In some of these Russian premieres, you hear about Tchaikovsky, maybe because Tchaikovsky's conducting, Tchaikovsky as a conductor is another really fascinating subject for me. And then you hear about Rachmaninoff performances of, for instance, his first symphony, where Glazunov was completely plastered for the performance. So it was how much of it was the music was new and very difficult for orchestras that weren't all necessarily a full-time professional gig, as opposed to some of the performing conditions compared to where we've evolved to in the high artistic standard that orchestras today have. Until late on, there was no such thing as a concert hall in Europe. In Beethoven and Mozart's time, there were no concert halls in Vienna. They were theatres, and there would be a play on, and then they would hire the theatre for a certain night, and the play would stop, and they'd, they'd perform a concert. The Burgtheater, this most snobby, if you like, of the court theatres in Vienna, right next to the Hofburg Imperial, the Emperor's Palace, so to speak, it was in the Burgtheater that Beethoven premiered his first two piano concertos, and the most important early concerts of his life in Vienna. But to this day, although it's been rebuilt and is in a different place, only puts on plays. So there were no concert halls in Paris or Berlin or Vienna. In fact, London had the first concert hall in Europe, and it was the Hanover Square Rooms in Hanover Square, just south of Oxford Street, right in the middle of London, sadly no longer exists. Mm. But it wasn't really a concert hall, as the title implies. It was the music rooms, and Haydn performed his symphonies there on his two tours of the UK, particularly London, and he premiered his London symphonies in the Hanover Square Rooms. So the point I'm trying to make is that music, till quite late in the 19th century, the 1800s, was regarded almost as not as a great art form in its own right, because there were no halls specially designed to take it. So those earlier composers struggled to get their music performed. Beethoven struggled. The story behind the first performance of his Ninth Symphony, The Great Choral, the 200th anniversary of which is on May the 7th this year, the struggle he had to get that put on, they offered him one theater, the Burgtheater, and he turned it down. They then offered him the Theater and der Wien, which he premiered a lot of his works at, and he turned that down because he didn't like the orchestra leader. He finally settled on the Kentner Tor Theater, which is the Kentner Tor Theater, and he finally accepted that. But we're talking here of theaters that put on plays. 
and he struggled to find a hall where he could perform it. Don't even think of good acoustics. The acoustics were probably appalling wherever classical music was performed until late on in the 19th century. Probably Russia. Russia had the Mariinsky Theatre, the Bolshoi Theatre, and I think the Mariinsky was a dedicated music theatre. So it took a while for concert halls to come to Europe, to be opened in Europe, and once they were, that, of course, made the composer's life a lot easier. Just getting to the later aspects of Tchaikovsky's life, he's the most famous musician in the world, essentially. And things are going very well. He's starting to earn more money. He's starting to get honorary doctorates. And all of a sudden, after a great premiere of the Sixth Symphony, Tchaikovsky unexpectedly passes away. We don't know if it's cholera, he drank unboiled water, or if he committed suicide because he was forced to through this court of honor thing. You also talk about how your book was written some years ago and possibly some of Medesk's records or reminiscences have been released. You repeat a few times, we're waiting for some more documents to be released and always with Russia, that's a hairy subject. Has there been any more updates on that or have you come to any more finality of how you think those events transpired? As far as I know, Devin, nothing new has come out over the last three or four years. I remember on my research trip to Moscow, when I went to clean where he had the final house that was the only house in his life that he bought, but he lived there for the last few years of his life where he actually wrote the sixth symphony. I spoke to the senior researcher there and she said they have got thousands of letters that they are working through, which are either written by him or those close to him. And they're working through them and they will be publishing them one day. I don't know what to say. I don't know when. I haven't followed up since then. I'm not aware of any new research on him. Unlike Verdi, for instance, who had a trunk full of letters and the family were trying to stop them being published, but the government ordered them to be opened and they are in the process of being edited and translated. New research on all the composers comes out all the time. My main research is into the life of Beethoven and only this last March last year, gosh, it's hard to believe it's almost a year ago, some extraordinary new research, some more detail about him was released as a result of a team at Cambridge University sequencing his genome. How extraordinary is that? So who knows what lies ahead in the next few years? The famous lock of hair that was clipped from Beethoven's head on his deathbed and which went from one owner to another and survived the Second World War and led to analysis in the early 2000s showing enormous amounts of lead in his blood when he died. The latest Cambridge University research of last March has shown that lock of hair belonged to a woman. So all that has now been discounted. Having said that, it's probably true that he had enormous levels of lead in his blood because Kitchen utensils were built of lead, made of lead. Paint was lead-based. The Danube was heavily polluted. So it's not an extraordinary finding and doesn't get us any closer to the question of what causes deafness. We still don't know. A lock of hair in 200 years from now might tell us everything. So the Tchaikovsky research is ongoing and there will be more released in the coming years, we can assume. On the question of his death, the conclusion that I came to, I interviewed two world-class conductors, both Russian, 
and both trained in St. Petersburg about Tchaikovsky, as I relate at the end of my book. And one of them was in no doubt at all that he committed suicide. And he said when he was at the St. Petersburg Conservatory during Soviet times, it was common knowledge. We all knew it. However, a younger Russian composer who was also at St. Petersburg said he didn't believe that he did commit suicide. And his description to me, as I relate in the book, rings true. Tchaikovsky was a fatalist. As I've discussed with you, Devin, my fate symphony, the symphony number four, I'm still struggling with fate, symphony number five. And he believed, as it were, in divine intervention and blamed himself for all his problems. And the, the whole gayness problem needn't have been a problem, but he made it one as if fate had decreed he's got to suffer this dreadful fate. And the way this conductor, Russian conductor, trained in St. Petersburg, conducted the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic here in the UK for many years, put it to me, he was having dinner with friends. We know he drank contaminated water and the waiter told him they'd run out of boiled water. All he had left was unsterilized water. And Tchaikovsky said, oh, bring it. He was thirsty and he took it off. And his friends probably tried, don't drink it, Piotr. Don't be stupid. And he probably said, oh, for goodness sake, if the worst is to happen, the worst is to happen. It's fate and drank it. And the worst happened. And mm -hmm. he probably had that attitude towards it. I can't believe it was a straightforward case of suicide because if you want to take your own life, that's a very strange way to set about it, to deliberately drink contaminated water. After all, it might well not kill you. You might not develop cholera. Mm -hmm. You might have a built-in resistance. His mother died of it. Mm -hmm. She might have passed on a built-in resistance to her children. Who knows? If you are determined to take your own life, there are much more effective ways that are not going to fail. So I don't believe it was a deliberate suicide. I do believe he was deeply depressed. By now, he was drinking too much mm -hmm. and he was smoking extra strong Turkish tobacco cigarettes from morning to night and drinking heavily in and, the evening. And not sleeping. Yes, that's right. He wasn't sleeping. He would read Charles Dickens in the Russian translation. And if he really wanted to, to, to hurt himself in, in English during the night because he couldn't sleep. So he was destroying himself. There's no question about that. And I'm sure the attitude to that water was simply, oh, for goodness sake, if it's to be, it'll be, boof. And I think until we know more, but as I say, the latest research on Beethoven came out last year. So who knows? I could be proved wrong next week. And you also mentioned that we know where Tchaikovsky's body is, so we could yes. conceivably exhume it and figure this out in a second. We could read the DNA and maybe in a hundred years create Tchaikovsky or a Beethoven. But I think one of the things that you point out so well about Beethoven and Tchaikovsky is they're a product of their circumstances. They're a product of their hardships. They're a product of all the things that Tchaikovsky complained about. We wouldn't have the music if all of these things wouldn't have happened. Russia was a cultural backwater in many ways up until the mid 1800s. The Mighty Five were all musical amateurs. They were sailors or doctors. They didn't do this as a profession. So Tchaikovsky went to the school of jurisprudence and he went into the civil service. And then his father said, maybe you should be a composer. Can you talk about that enduring trait that Tchaikovsky had that regardless of what life threw him, he just created and created? 
it's so often the case that a musician wants to become a composer and the father steps in and won't let it happen. In Tchaikovsky's case, when the father finally relented, first of all, he put Tchaikovsky into the school of jurisprudence. From there, he joined the civil service. And finally, I don't think the father willingly said, okay, you can go to the conservatory. Tchaikovsky said, I am going. Probably the reason the father relented, he didn't expect him to become a composer because as you say, there was barely such a thing in Russia at that time. It was a nation of writers, a bit like England in a way. We had the great writers from Shakespeare onwards. So did Russia. But composers, neither here nor in Russia, were no big deal. I'm sure he hoped that Tchaikovsky would earn a living as a performer because he was an extremely good pianist. This is often the case with composers. Beethoven, when he first arrived in Vienna, just short of his 22nd birthday, and wanted to go into the aristocratic salons, they took one look at this small, long-haired, pot-marked, badly-dressed individual with a rough accent from the Rhineland. This is Vienna, sophisticated, cultured Vienna. We speak very soft. We speak the way we... It was that kind of thing. What on earth? You are claiming to be a musician? And then he sat at the piano. Everything changed. And it was the same for Tchaikovsky at the School of Jurisprudence. He would entertain all the other students in the evening by playing the piano. So he was a very good musician. And it took him a while to move into composition. Once he moved into it, it was a while before his work got accepted. And really, the fantasy overture Romeo and Juliet didn't come early. And that was really the first piece that made them sit up and take notice. The other stuff, fell by the wayside. Even the early symphonies, really, the first three symphonies are very rarely performed today. Very rarely. It's really just four, five, and six. So often, these composers struggle to be allowed, even Mozart, his father said, for goodness sake, stop wasting your time composing, become an instrumentalist. And he got him a job as a violinist in the court orchestra. Composition is this rare talent. It takes a very special kind of musician to become a composer. And that is why if we reel off names of great writers, whether playwrights, novelists, or whatever, anyone can write because we all do write. Some of us write better than others, and some of us are amazing. Charles Dickens might come along. You have John Updike. You have so many great writers in America. But composers, how many great American composers can I name? Not that many. How many great British composers can I name? Not that many. Germans and Austrians, that's a different matter. Russians, that's a different matter. French composers, not that many. Why that is, I do not know, but it is a fact. Not sure if that's a satisfactory answer, really. It's been a satisfactory book. And one of the things I love about your books, particularly Tchaikovsky, The Man Revealed, is you're speaking to people who do music for their lives and we can be illuminated by some of the things that you unearth. At the same time, it speaks to anybody who wants to learn more about it. This is the book to get into because you're not going into all the analysis, which sometimes yeah. things can put me to sleep. You touch on the music and you weave it into the lives and, and you show how important it is to have a little understanding or just the humanity that is in people's lives can reveal their art. I just love your work and I look forward to speaking again in the future when future releases happen for you. If I can just say to you, when people who are not musicians tell me that they enjoy my books, it's so gratifying. 
But when a professional musician tells me, I cannot tell you, Devin, what that means to me. And thank you so much for what you've just said. In essence, I was trained to quite a high level musically. My hobby at school, when I bought the Fourth Symphony, Tchaikovsky, was to buy the score and to follow it in the score. I've always loved doing that. Now on my iPad, I've got all the Beethoven piano sonatas, all the string quartets, all the cello sonatas, violins, and the score moves along with them. I just absolutely love doing that. So I understand music. I can read music. But sadly for me, my musical talent is not as great as I wish it was. If I could play it rather than write about it, I would be a more fulfilled individual. But to hear real musicians say what you've just said is enormously gratifying. In a nutshell, I get to the music through the man. And I think musicologists get to the man through the music. To take Beethoven's life, in a conventional biography, you might have the first section of 50 pages on his life and then three or 400 on individual pieces of music. Mm. I chronicle the life first and foremost, and then how the music developed from the life, not how the life developed from the music. I'm aiming people who don't want to know opus numbers or key signatures, mm. or whether it's in F sharp or E flat, but was he drunk when he wrote it? Was he in love with when he wrote it? What made him write it? That's what fascinates me. And to hear what you've just said, I, honestly, that was lovely to hear. And I'm really grateful. And I must get a copy of my new Beethoven book to you. Comes out on October the 17th. And this is very different to anything I've ever written before. It's not a biography of Beethoven. It's a blend of his life and my life. It was my wife's idea. We were in Vienna two summers ago in Heiligenstadt in the garden. And I started boring her with all the story of Heiligenstadt and why he was there and what he was doing. And she actually turned to me and she said, you must write this down. And I said, I already have several times. And she said, no, make it your story. Why Beethoven? How did he come into your life? And I said, that'll make a good 10 pages. I put it to my publisher. She also said, that's a good idea. And when I started writing, I couldn't stop. So it's how his life and his music have become the great passion of my life. And I'll be sure to get a copy to you. And I'd love to have a little chat like this about it when the time comes. Thank you so much, John. I can't wait. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on One Symphony. Thanks to John Sushit for sharing his wealth of knowledge. You can find more info at John Sushit. That's S-U-C-H-E-T dot C-O dot U-K. And pick up a copy of Tchaikovsky, The Man Revealed and other books by great composers of John's wherever you get your books. Musical selections on this episode today include Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony by the Berlin Philharmonic, Bruckner's Seventh Symphony by Vienna Philharmonic, and Herbert von Karajan, Strauss's Blue Danube Waltz by the Vienna Philharmonic and Willy Boskowski, Sugar Rum Cherry, Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy from Three Sweets by Duke Ellington, Tchaikovsky's First String Quartet by the Emerson String Quartet, and The Nutcracker by the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. You can always find more info at onesymphony.org, including a virtual tip jar if you'd like to support the show. Please feel free to rate, review, or share the show. Until next time, thank you for being a part of the music.